0: The following is a message by Dr. Stephen Baugh of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, please visit us online at www.wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at www.wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we are entering into your presence with joy now to pause in our work, to reflect upon the truths of your scripture. Please bless us to that end, O Lord, that we may joyfully glorify you and to uh, be edified by you as you speak to us in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. If you want to open to the Gospel of John, Turn to John 1 and don't look at it. This way I can pull the wool over your eyes. The uh, chapel messages are devotionals, not sermons, so I'm going to do something I would never do in a sermon, and that is survey a whole bunch of stuff. Because it's striking how uh, over a hundred times in the other Gospels you have the phrase, kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, a synonym, over a hundred times. Uh, But in the Gospel of John, you have it twice. Uh, Then, uh, as a result, you might imagine that the Gospel of John is not interested in the kingdom of God, when, in fact, the kingdom of God is a central reality of all of Scripture, indeed of human life. Uh, it's It's the thing about this creation that's exciting, is that that kingdom has been inaugurated. The new creation, as it were, because that is what the kingdom of God is. It's the new creation, the consummation of all of God's work into a new resurrected reality for us and a complete renovation of everything in this creation. We don't know what it will be like, but as for us, we know we will be like him in resurrected glory by his grace. So where is it in the Gospel of John? Well, interestingly, uh, several times you find this is the question in John, but it centers on, not the kingdom per se, but on the king. So it opens the Gospel of John with, right after the long, uh, very or kind of ornate introduction to the Gospel, you have the, the denial of John the Baptist that he is Elijah, he is the prophet, uh, and that he is the Messiah. So he uh, makes that clear that he is not him, but people had sent to him to inquire if he is that, because they were looking for the Messiah, as it were, in particular. Then uh, you have Andrew speaks to his brother Peter and says, we have found the Messiah. John has to, of course, translate that Aramaic and Hebrew word Messiah, Messiah, Mashiach, into Greek and says, which is translated the Christ. This is 140 and 41 then you have this episode with Nathanael, which is quite interesting. Of course, Jesus sees him under the fig tree. And then Nathanael confesses him to be, as he says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. So now we have an explicit word, King, uh, right there for Jesus. And he does not deny it. He's a teacher. He's a Son of God. Now that that phrase to us is full of a lot of theological meaning, isn't it? We think in a Trinitarian fashion, but probably his uh, confession is drawn from Second Samuel 7, isn't it? That uh, the Davidic king of Israel will be uh, son to God. I will be God to him and he father to him. He will be son to me. So he is the king of Israel. Notice that, uh, in a sense, Jesus would nod and say, well, yes, but it's not just Israel, by the way, because <laughs> that's where the kingdom is going. And you all know, of course, in John 4, this uh, fabulous passage with this uh, person who has two strikes against her, as it were, you know, the text itself makes this point. Uh, she's a woman, and indeed, she's a Samaritan woman, Whom Jesus talks to, she's even surprised he's talking to her. Um, But not only does he talk to her, he draws her. And then he uh, affirms that he is the Messiah to her. The uh, king to come. Again, when you hear Messiah, you think royal title of kingship. Then we have this passage that we all know about because in, in our circles... And of course, the evangelical circles at large, it's the place where we find regeneration so clearly uh, presented in some intriguing features of it. The Nicodemus passage, we could call this faith and the man. Uh, You look at this passage in detail, it opens actually, you need to read the end of chapter 2, verse 23, and then into chapter 3. And in 2, I mean, there's this uh, focus It's rendered people here, but it's, you know, it's the word generically for man, human being. Uh, And then you have this unusual phrase opening chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees. This is not the way you say that. Uh, But he does. John writes it that way so you'd see this is a man. Just like the men whom Jesus did not entrust himself to, even though they had a kind of faith in him. Now here's a man. Who is of the Pharisees? Indeed, he's a ruler of the Jews. And when you look at this passage, uh, the way I analyze it, some of you have heard me uh, say this in class this is a confrontation. Jesus ends up kind of in your face with Nic- Nicodemus. I, call, I just call him Nick. Uh, get, let me read the Bible enough, you can use shorthand like that. Uh, but Nicodemus. Uh, Interesting Greek name, isn't it? Conqueror of the people. Uh, the uh, Nicodemus doesn't understand these things. That's a that's a really important point in the Gospel of John. He, he doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about. Uh, come back to that. But then Jesus uses this uh, word with a double meaning—an unusual word. You know, if you want to see the kingdom of God, this is the two places you find that phrase, because Jesus repeats it twice. You must be born anothen, which is a term that is ambiguous. It can mean again, but it also can mean from above. Then as the gospel continues to proceed, we find out more about this above that Jesus is talking about. Look, well, I'll read it for you. Verse 31, chapter 3, verse 31. He who comes from above, anothen, that's the next use of that word, uh, adverb he who comes from above is above all he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way he who comes from heaven is above all of course jesus as we know now is talking about himself he's the one from above who enables this birth from above which is a birth again it has a double meaning here in our phrase. but then of course it's also attributed to the spirit So you start getting a glimpse that the kingdom of God is really a Trinitarian work. Uh, Jesus is the mediator of bringing this to pass, but it is a fully divine work with the Father and the Son and the Spirit, all uh, bringing this to pass. Well, you know, we're getting all this little stuff about the kingdom now. But then we're reading a a gospel where uh, John faithfully relates to us how this message is heard, what's going on. Chapter six, kind of a classic uh, place, somewhat in the middle of Jesus' testimony to Israel. He feeds the 5,000. He's in the uh, northern northeastern part of the Sea of Galilee, and there are some hills that, that go up from it. They're called the Golan Heights now. Uh, there are these hills, similar, if you look out here, you see some hills. So when I go home to Valley Center that way, I climb 1,300 feet to get over those hills. But those hills kind of gradually go up, you, and Jesus is talking about halfway up, roughly. You know, this is where he talks to these people and then feeds them, the 5,000. Um, but interestingly, in this episode, you start getting a hint of where this gospel is going. He feeds the 5,000, and then the focus, though, starts really turning to the 12. And he really is, you know, saying, you know, how can we feed these people? He's pushing his disciples to understand what he's about and what he's doing. And then, of course, you know, they feed them from these uh, barley cakes and what probably is fish relish. It's not even little fish. It might be some sort of fish paste that they spread on bread. Um, and the uh, disciples collect 12 baskets of leftovers to take with them, and each one of the 12 can then be fed from this miraculous work. So you see, the, the focus is on the 12. Well, what's the response of the people? This is actually by the Passover, and you probably have a lot of pilgrims coming down from the north. That's who these people are, and they're going to Jerusalem for the Passover. And it says in verse chapter 6 verse 15, Jesus perceiving uh, then that they were about to come and take him by force to install him as king. See, this is the response to the people. Oh, Messiah, king, let's go. We're going to Jerusalem. We're going to install him as king. And Israel will have its king and we're going to throw the Romans out, of course. That's That's given. And we're going to renew the Davidic theocracy. What does Jesus do? Finally. They understood. They, ex- they believe in me. They accept my ministry. They finally see my kingship. And we're going to at least start here with a the theocracy. And then expand out into a supernatural work of God. That will encompass the whole earth. It says he withdrew again to the mountain. Altas manas, a phrase which means all by himself alone. <laughs> altas Manas, you don't need either you, you don't need both of those. By himself, Altas Manas, all alone. <laughs> so Jesus withdrew, not even the twelve were invited, because they were probably part of this coup, this attempted coup in Jerusalem. We're gonna take Jesus down because they think he's the Son of God in that sense. He's the Messiah they've seen it, they've seen the evidence of it he's more than that, he's a prophet he can do supernatural stuff so this is really a hot shot Messiah well that doesn't go over very well with the people to go by himself alone, because what it is he went further up the mountain it says he got away from them well then in chapter 12 you have the turning point of the book the book of John is divided into two, roughly. The first is the book of signs to Israel, his people. And then the second part is the book of signs to the new Israel. His 12 focuses on the 12. Uh, there's a transition, uh, really focusing more on the 12 at this stage. And here we are in chapter 12, one of my favorite books because of the humor of it all. Uh, in 12, 34 to 37, this is the conclusion of uh, really this section, Jesus has been talking about the Son of Man, how he has to be lifted up. And then some Greeks start inquiring of Jesus, and he says, okay, the time has come. I've got to finish my earthly work now and bring in the kingdom that he really is sent for. I'm adding that, of course. Uh, but here at the conclusion of the book of science of the people, we read this in verses 34 to 37. I'll read it for you. So the crowd answered him, We've heard from the law that the Christ, Messiah, King, remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to, him, said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overcome you. It says overtake, but this is a kind of a strong word for seizing and overthrowing you. The darkness overthrow you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. This is why you have a transition They didn't believe in him on his terms. They believed in him as the Messiah of their own making. The Messiah of the kind of kingdom they wanted. But it was not the Messiahship that Jesus came to fulfill. He came to fulfill and bring in a kingdom vaster than they could conceive. Now we have uh, in chapter 18, Jesus who makes his profession of his kingship. You know, in the Gospel of John, that is the issue. Is Jesus a king? It comes up time and time again before the high priest and before particularly Pilate. There's this interaction in chapter 18, verses 33, into chapter 19, and it starts with Pilate, the first thing he says to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And then that's repeated time and again. Are you the king? Uh, and Pilate doesn't want to crucify him. I'm not going to crucify your king. This guy's obviously uh, demented, you know, and really no threat to me. But maybe he has royal blood. Maybe he's some sort of peasant, you know, royalty that is no threat to us. But you know, I should be honored as having a royal background and lineage. Uh, you know, Pilate has no idea really what this whole kingship's about. And of course, Jesus says, well, my kingdom's not of this world. Now he knows he's a madman. Uh, I mean, you think about what Pilate is thinking here. Uh, Then again, it's all about his kingship. And it ends with Jesus crucified, and Pilate puts this sign up. Here is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Well, Israel doesn't want that. You see, Israel at this stage has clearly rejected him as king. They were willing to install him as king in Jerusalem on their terms, but he didn't cooperate. And so, time and again, Pilate says, Do you want your king? No, give us Barabbas. The, and, then, and then it ends up with we only have one king, Caesar. That's, that's verse 15 of chapter 19. So Pilate delivers him over to be crucified, and he writes king of the Jews above him as he's crucified. Uh, And then we have uh, chapter 19, verse 22. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek so that everybody could see it. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews but rather, this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate says, what well, I have written. I have written the final rejection of Israel. Not even They weren't even willing to grant him this title in death. So, Israel was willing to, to perform a coup against the Romans. They end up trying to perform a coup against Jesus and his kingship. By killing him. Now we go to the beginning. This is where it all starts. This is where the kingdom of God starts. And this is where the kingdom of God in John starts. Chapter 1 verse 1. Because the kingdom of God is only analogous with creation. It's not a little theocracy with boundaries in Judea. John one one, turn with me. This is actually the passage for the devotional. <laughs> in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not any one thing made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light is shining in the darkness, and the darkness has not overthrown it. I fiddle with that a little bit. You see, they say the darkness shines in the darkness, as if that was kind of generally true. This is not a proverb. This is a statement of the light of Christ now is shining in the darkness. You see, that attempted coup to overthrow Jesus failed because of the light of the resurrection, introducing the inauguration of the age to come in the person of Jesus, the firstborn of resurrected glory, which is what we will be like in the new creation, namely the kingdom of God that he's introducing. He brought the kingdom of God in, in himself, and then he has granted us citizenship in this kingdom. So the light is now shining in the darkness so that anyone who believes in Jesus and comes to God through his mediation is in the light. But then, this same verb we heard in chapter 12, where Jesus warns the Jews walk in the light while you have it, because the darkness may overthrow you. This is a strong term. It means to, it's similar to conquer, to seize upon. And then to seize and overthrow something in a military conflict. And that's what we have in the last part of verse 5. That the darkness has not overthrown it. Has not conquered the light. There was an attempt to throw the light down and stomp on it. In the person of Jesus by killing him. And it did not work. And of course behind this was the ruler of this world whom Jesus says... He's now cast out. So this is also, interestingly, an unusual term. He didn't use the word conquer, which he uses elsewhere. He uses this term in verse 5 that has two meanings. John loves these two meanings. Because it means the darkness has not overthrown it, but it also has an intellectual meaning. It has not grasped, has not understood it. Well, we see that throughout the gospel as well. So verse 5 is really a kingdom verse, saying the kingdom of God has dawned in the person of Jesus. And the darkness has not overthrown it, and indeed cannot, because the light is now shining, and it's a permanent installation in this creation. We have now the light of the kingdom of God shining in this world. And we are instruments of advancing that kingdom through the gospel, through pointing people to Jesus and bringing them to Jesus and edifying them in Jesus. This is where the kingdom is manifested and grows until that day when it dawns permanently in the new creation. So don't imagine that the gospel of John has no interest in the kingdom of God. It is the fundamental reality of this gospel as well as the others, and indeed, of all of scripture so live in that light understand it and realize the darkness even though it looks around us to be winning cannot win because it has not overthrown jesus even if you may die you will not die in the same way that he died and was raised again all right let's pray Oh Lord, we pray for your grace as we walk in a world where it still looks like at times of darkness winds. But in Christ Jesus, the, the king and creator of this world, we have a light that shines permanently. We pray your grace, O oh Lord, to live in that light, to walk in it, and to glorify you in the kingdom of God that you've granted us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.